Well, thank you guys so much for your prayers, for those of you who prayed for us. Uh, it means the world to me. And um, we've been gone for the last couple of weeks. For those of you who uh, prayed for us, we just really appreciate it. And uh, we missed you guys terribly. I, I missed you from the moment I left. And uh, when you love people, it's hard to be away. Thank you, bro. And um, we are glad to be home. And we, we appreciate your patience with us. I was uh, teasing Tyler a little bit, though, that I, I'm not as good as he is to get you out as early as he, he did. So <laughs> you've, uh, you've been uh, blessed the last couple of weeks. Uh, probably not going to be blessed like that this morning. But, um, no, we're, we're excited uh, to be back, and the, the Lord is... Um, is doing a lot, so we just we're, we're encouraged by that. I want to just remind you guys real quick before we carry on that we are doing a, a diaper drive, a diaper day, December tenth, I believe it is. Is that correct? Okay. Um, so what, I don't know. Jared may have announced this, but I just want to remind you guys: if each week, if you have a little extra in your budget, if you don't, don't feel the pressure to do this, please, whatsoever. I don't want anybody to go into debt over anything. Um, but if you have anything extra in your budget and you're at Walmart or wherever you shop and you want to pick up a box of diapers a week or, or once a month or whatever you can afford, we really want to hone in on the 2T, 3T size, and we're going to have an outreach where we just bless mothers um, for diapers before Christmas so they can spend more money on their, their gifts for their kids instead of having to worry about diapers. So um, just feel free to bring them to the church. And we'll store them till that day, and I'm trying to work with some other pastors to be involved as well so we can get as many as we can. And then we'll have a big day and, and pass all those out. So we invite you to, to uh, work with us in that, in, uh, in outreach and, and blessing our community and in any way you, you can. But again, if you don't have the money financially, we totally understand. Just pray that the Lord would bless those people, and your prayers are just as valuable as anything else. Amen? All right, so thank you. For coming this morning, it's good to see every one of you guys. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to try to blow through verse 1. <laughs> That's probably all we're going to get to, honestly. You know, how many of you guys have realized through this series, we've been in the, in the uh, book of Ephesians, and we're taking it verse by verse as we go through. How many of you guys realize there was that amount of depth in the verses that Paul was talking about? Uh, before this, or how many of you guys realize that after we've gone through these things, right? All right, so it's very important for us to understand that when you're reading Paul, you're not only reading a genius, you're reading a genius who's inspired by the Spirit. And there's nothing more intelligent than the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so when he's moving upon a man who's already as intelligent as Paul is, and structured by God himself, we need to pay attention to the order and the thought and the flow of Scripture. Amen? Paul doesn't sit down and randomly write letters. He calls himself a wise master builder. That's not arrogant. That's confident in what God has done and what God has shown you. And so when Paul begins to outline or address a specific church, you have to understand there was something of a flow on his heart as he was writing the letter. And because of our American society, we like to put other things in Scripture before other things. We, we pick and choose certain topics that, that facilitate our gift. And as a side note, a strong sign of immaturity in a Christian's life is to see the gospel through the lens of your gift. 
Because then you will beat people in the church who don't see things the way you do. Because they have a different gift. And then you'll run the risk of thinking that you're right and they're wrong. And that's immaturity. Does that make sense? So Paul, understanding these gifts, because he actually touches on them here in the next few chapters, begins to outline an idea for the Ephesian church. And we have to understand that when he was writing to the book of Ephesians, he was also writing to a people who were very steeped in spiritualism. These, these are the same people in the book of Acts who burned all of their curious arts in the city square as they got born again. And it was probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of demonic material. So they were very steeped in spiritual realities. You with me? They were worshiping devils. They understood spirit realm. They understood that things were not disconnected to life. And so Paul begins to exhort them on how their daily life is connected to the powers and principalities and divine nature of God. And that how people live literally empowers one or the other. Whereas in our American society, how we live is a complete disassociation to anything that has to do with spirituality because we are covered in grace. And well, yet our lives are a wreck, our nations are a wreck, our churches are a wreck. Does this make sense to you? And so in our modern culture, we've usurped our opinion of the word over the word himself. As if the word can be dissected by mere humanity. When the word is a man who came to save humanity and bring it into himself instead of allowing us the cordial idea to, to cut him apart and place him in our lives as we see fit. Does this make sense to you? It's amazing to me. I, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, for those of you who don't realize, we do not have internet today. Um, so we're going to try to cut the video or the feed here on the, on the audio, put it on the website, and that's the best we can do. So there's no live stream, so if you're taking notes, take notes. Um, hopefully we'll get the audio on for you to go back and listen to this. But it's absolutely amazing to me the degradation of modern Christianity. Uh, things that were abhorred 30 years ago are now celebrated in the church. And young people are too young to know what was abhorred 30 years ago. And so what abhorred one generation is now accepted and celebrated by another because Jesus isn't enthroned in the hearts of people. And Paul was addressing a church who understood the powers and principalities of darkness. So we're, talking, we're, we're attacking Ephesians from the understanding of chapter 6 all the way uh, from 1 to 5. Because when we talk about um, Ephesians, most people want to, they want to get to chapter 6. They want to get to that spiritual warfare side of things. Because we're drunk with power. <laughs> you know why we want power? Because we're not satisfied with just who Jesus is in ourselves. So we feel like we need something else that can generate or engender a pat on the back from another person. The problem with that is, is that the moment you get that pat on the back, you're not a slave to that individual. Because now they need to pat you on the back every week. And then you set them up as an idol or they set you up as an idol. And the whole thing is carnal. People are power drunk because they want identity. They want acceptance. They want fulfillment. They want to feel valued. When they have all of those things already, they just don't believe it. Does it make sense to you? 
So, Paul's trying to get them to chapter 6, but he has to teach them how to live before he can get there. And we've talked about chapters 1, 2, and 3, how Paul begins to lay out the pattern of what it means to be a man or a woman of God in modern day society. If you had cut out the entire Bible, as I've said in the past sessions, and only left us with the book of Ephesians, we would have enough to live as godly people until Jesus returns. So the practical reality of church is what we're missing. I want you to understand, please, you in this place, your life, your dishes, your husband, your family, the day-to-day rigor, the job, the boss, the bills, the taxes, how you touch those things is absolutely vital to releasing a power greater than your moment. They're not mundane issues. They're not something to get through. They're something to inhabit as a son in that scenario so that you can bring life where nobody else can. Life is not something to endure. It's something to release. And we've looked at it as something to get through. And people look at Sunday as their day to like, Reconnect with the Lord. <laughs> Sundays should be the day that you come because you've been so connected to the Lord that now you're focused on everybody but you. And that's the gospel. Now, if you're growing and need help, that's fine. It's, there's, there's no condemnation there. But at some point in your life, things in spiritual maturity should cease to be about you, your opinions, and your thoughts. And your deference to someone even of a lesser spirituality should be the heart cry of your life because love is more important than winning an argument. Or do we need to teach on that? <laughs> Maybe you guys ever won an argument and gained a soul. Now, usually if you win the argument, you lose the soul. All it does is elevate your pride. I think we've also lowered the reality of what winning an argument should look like. It's When we do that, we, we basically expose somebody else's hypocrisy to a degree that they can no longer defend themselves. Yet, ironically, it's come from the mouth of a hypocrite that caused their exposure. Show me one hypocrite, one person who's not a hypocrite other than Jesus. <laughs> Everybody in here does one thing and says another. So to expose somebody else's doesn't mean you've won a battle. It just means you've been blind to your own. It's a double loss. I don't know how I got off on that. This is why I preached so long, Tyler. Sorry. So Paul ends his discourse on chapter 3 with the understanding of God's glory in the church. He ends this chapter saying, hey, this whole thing is supposed to bring about glory and honor, our unity, our relationships together, Bring glory and honor to God. The modern idea of community in church is not a biblical one. Our lives are supposed to be so intertwined that it makes the Father happy. Have you ever read the Lord's Prayer or prayed it? If you've prayed that prayer over your life only, you've missed the entrance of the prayer. You have to say the first word in order for the rest of it to flow. And the first word does not start with my Say it. Yeah. We miss this idea. Prayer should be an invitation to God to enter the entire family. 
If your prayers are encapsulated and encircled around you, your business, and your life, you've missed the heart of God altogether. Paul talks about, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is the mind of Christ? It's simple. To esteem somebody else higher than you esteem yourself. To worry about somebody else's needs more than you worry about your own. Prayer is the invitation of God into the family, not the individual. Because when the family is blessed, the individual grows. Okay? If you want to grow spiritually, you must connect with people that you may not like. <laughs> you, need, you need someone who irritates you in your life. That's why I'm here. I'm okay with it. It doesn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> it just doesn't. I, I'm amazed at how unmoved I am when people say, I really don't like you. I'm like, that's awesome. I don't care. Like, you know, some people say I don't care, and they really care. I, I, it really doesn't move me because, you know what? I'm here to put you closer to Jesus. I'm not here for your praises. I love what Reinhard Bonnke says. I'm immune to criticism because I'm immune to praise. Does this make sense? Now, I don't mean that we shouldn't be take criticism from those who walk with us. All right. So I want you to understand that Paul's going to get to this idea. He's going to get to this idea of spirituality, the spiritual warfare issue. But what he addresses before he gets there is indicative of how we fight while, when we're there. Do you understand that, that Paul really talks about marriage and relationships? And we're going to get into that. And it's probably going to take a little bit. Because if you've got an improper relationship with your spouse, forget spiritual warfare. I know people who are in deliverance ministries, and they've been divorced several times. <laughs> but they want to go fight devils and cast devils out of people. And it's like, well, why didn't you do that in your first marriage? See, I know divorce is a touchy topic in the church because a lot of people have been divorced. And I'm sorry, but it's not biblical. It's wrong. It's wrong. You should have never done it. And people say, well, you know, what about this and that? And I'm like, well, if somebody's abusive, then yeah, you leave them, but you don't divorce them. You wait, and you pray, and you wait, and you pray, and if he never changes or she never changes, then you're still married to Jesus, and your eternity is, is still secure, and there's no marriage in heaven. Is there? So, we have to live in a certain way. And then I see the church celebrating people who get remarried after being divorced. Uh, so it's tough because the Bible doesn't apologize. And I know this is a hard topic, but it, we have to touch it because we're going to get there. Now, if you've got some questions on that, I'll be happy to talk with you privately. Because there are some, some things we can discuss. But if you've gotten divorced, don't ever do it again. Amen? Who you're with now, look at them in the eye. Say, I'm stuck with you. And you're stuck with me. 
All right. Some of y'all are like, stuck's a good word. All right. All right, so the physical reality of Jesus was a spiritual connection. Does this make sense to you? It was the physical death of Jesus. It was the physical life of Jesus. It was the physical meat and bone of Jesus that caused the spiritual reality to shift. Jesus didn't live as a sloppy, super spiritual, uh, non-human, and then begin to take out all the principalities and powers and darknesses. How many of you guys know that Jesus had to become a human in order to defeat non-human entities? Do you get that? Because here's why. God gave us ultimate authority in this earth. He did not create this earth for him or the Holy Spirit. He created this earth for us. We were supposed to rule and reign. When we gave that authority away, we gave it to a spiritual power. In order for that spiritual power to be regained, it had to come the same way it was lost. Through a human being. God could not, according to his legal right, take all of hell out of the second heavens and defeat them and give back to humanity what we lost. In other words, it would take a physical person living a specific way to undergo the process of rehabilitation and regeneration from the powers of darkness. It took a life lived a certain way to affect spiritual powers. If it's that way for Jesus, how come it's not that way for us? This is why Paul talks about homosexuality, adultery, sexual sin, issues like this. Why? Because these are feasting grounds for the demonic realm to once again govern a people who have been set free. Does this make sense to you? He specifically hammers sexual issues over and over and over again because it's, it's the power in which uh, the devils bind human beings to shame and to darkness and to depression and to fear and to slavery of sin. And it breaks the covenants of God. And when the covenants of God are broken, the promises of God can't enter the way they should. It takes people living a certain way, not because of legalism, but because of empowerment to do so to bring forth the glory of God into our, into our realm. Does this make sense to you? Am I, am, I, am I helping you understand that the physical life that we live is in direct connection to the spiritual warfare we try to, to, to release? Apathy. If you live an apathetic life, devils don't have to listen to you when you... <laughs> Speak to them. Does this make sense to you? When we, when we indulge ourselves into earthly, sensual realities, demonic realities, even though we call ourselves sons of God, there's a, there's a stripping of authority that happens. Thank God for repentance. Thank God for grace that we can come back and be restored. This is why Jesus holds the keys. Because <laughs> if he gave them back to us, we'd lose them again. He holds the keys to death and hell. He's not going to give them back. He's the human. He's the human that holds them now. It takes a human to hold them. He's the one that holds them. He won't give them back to us. He says he gives us the keys to the kingdom, but he's got the keys to death and hell. You with me? All right. So God cannot divorce himself from himself, obviously, right? So he lives in us. 
So his nature should live in us as well. You with me? Let's look at verse 1, chapter 4 of Ephesians. Paul's already gone through three chapters at this point. He starts in verse 1. It's interesting he addresses this. He says, a prisoner of the Lord, I am. I want you to understand this. Paul's gotten through the entirety of chapter 3, and he opens chapter 4 with a discourse of saying, right now, I'm literally in chains as I write this letter to you. Why was this what the case? Because when you live a life as Paul lived, and the temptations of life and the, and the seductions of life and things that, that, that the enemy tries to use against the minds of people can no longer be applied to such a man. The only recourse that hell has is to chain him and imprison him to limit his gospel because it's that powerful. This makes sense to you. The only way the demon could stop this man was to chain him to a wall. This is how much hell feared one person holding these truths in a lifestyle that was released to all mankind. This makes sense. <laughs> I want you to really get that. Hell fears this type of person so much that, that if, if they have to, they will demean and imprison you to stop you because your gospel has so much authority and power. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. That word can also be translated to beg. To walk. That word walk literally means to live your life. Worthy of the calling which you were called. This, this letter has cost this man everything. When we read this, we just pass right on by that. But you're not the one in chains. He's lost everything and everybody's forsaken him. And he's literally writing from the confines of a prison, not sure how this letter will be received, but yet knowing by the Spirit, it must be written. He loves these people. He's met these people. He's baptized these people. He's had a life with these people for three months. He sets the church up, and now he's writing to them saying, listen, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, live worthy of the calling God has put on your life. That word walk means to live. You understand this? So as someone who's experienced the full reality of how the kingdom of God is treated in the earth. He says, I'm begging you to live worthy of the gospel they called you. See, Paul understands what it's going to cost these people to live this way. We're upset if somebody cuts us off and takes our parking spot. We're upset if our wife or our husband offend us. Or hurt our feelings. I'm not sure the Church of America is ready for this type of reality. I'm not saying we'll ever get there, but I'm saying it's at least worth a thought. What happens if this ever comes where the gospel becomes so offensive that they imprison people because of it? And then everything that you believe and love is on the outside. What kind of life did you live up to that point? And how can people look at what you've done? And the letter that you write, would it be one of desperation and shame and hope? 
or would it be one of these? I'm asking you to live in a way that could put you exactly where I am. Do you understand that's what he's asking of them? Live in such a way that you're worthy of the gospel that I've preached to you. But Paul, if we live that way, we might end up where you're at. Exactly. Because it's worth it. And how you live, how you walk, is absolutely vital. Not only to the message, but to the community and to the powers of darkness. This make sense to you? So I want you to remember that word walk. It's many times placed in the New Testament. First John says this. He says, anyone who names the name of Christ must walk, live as Christ lived. In other words, if you call yourself a believer, you must live like Jesus. I was constantly shocked to find how much of Christianity is engaged in drunkenness. I'm amazed. And then all the arguments start about the legalities and Jesus did this and that. And I just look at people now and go, you know, you do whatever you want, but I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus said this, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine anymore until I drink with you anew in the kingdom. So if he's abstaining, so am I. I believe that how you live directly correlates your depression or lack thereof. See, I, I live according to the gospel, and I'm not depressed. But I was a long time ago when I didn't live according to the gospel, and I lived in some weird hybridization place of me trying to manipulate God and calling it Christianity. See, there's one king. It's not you, and it's not me. You with me? So Paul understands that this gospel of the kingdom that he's been preaching up to this point is so intrusive into demonic realms that it's caused him to not only be harmed for this message that he's preaching, but it's also caused him to be imprisoned. So we need to understand this, because when you're talking about getting into chapter 6, and you're talking about marriage, you're talking about all these issues, it's very important to understand what the gospel actually would, could cost you. And we, not, we may not be imprisoned today, but you will suffer persecution if you follow the things Jesus' way. You'll lose friends, you'll lose family. You know, Jesus promised us, he said, it's the people who are going to persecute you are going to do it because they think they're serving God. In other words, your fellow believers, the people you love, the people sitting next to you in church, will eventually turn. I'm not saying none of you guys will. I'm just saying that that's what he promises. You with me? All right. 
So there's an understanding of laid out of how life must be lived in accordance with the teachings. When God comes to a people, he chooses a people. When he chooses a people, he chooses a house. The house has got to reflect the maker. Does this make sense? When, when Some of you are builders in here, but nonetheless, when you build houses for people, you're building a house that reflects the nature of the person that chooses that house. Everything's laid out based upon their identity, their reality, their personality. And then when they arrange the house and decorate the house, you can, you can see. I can walk into houses and I can see instantly what kind of woman it is based upon how they decorate. Are they modern and trendy and Instagram-y with the white and the gold and the burlap? And, or are they more subtle or they just don't care or what are they you know you can tell a lot about how someone deck because it reflects themselves it's a statement to who they are this makes sense so when God builds a house he's no different he builds and designs the house to reflect who he is who are who is that house we are so when God is building his house, because in the Old Testament he says, rather, rather facetiously I guess, he looks at him and says, heaven is my throne. I live in heaven. I have streets made with gold. Like gold is my asphalt. <laughs> my street pavement is gold. It's nothing to me. The earth is where I place my feet. What kind of house are you going to build for me? In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a mocking question. God's like, what do, you, what do you think you could build that I could inhabit, that I would actually like? You don't have the power. You don't have enough gold to pave my streets. The beauty of the earth is where I just put my feet. The idea was this, is that you don't get to build the house for me. I build my house out of you. So when God chooses a people, he chooses a house, and the house has got to reflect the maker. This is why Paul's telling people, you need to live a certain way. You need to walk a certain way. The house has to reflect the inhabitor. You have to reflect what's inside of you. Because if you don't, when you finally meet a devil or a demon or an impossible situation in your marriage, it will dominate you. See, everybody's spiritual until you can't move something in front of you. <laughs> I don't care what you've been through. There's a mountain you haven't faced yet. And when you get to it, your first time around it, it's going to beat you down. Promise you that. Nobody wins the first time. <laughs> I've talked to lots of people who've done this way longer than me. And I've got 25 years into this. And I, the first time I encounter something, I usually it's in me that needs to change. And i got to go back and regroup and get on my face and figure out what's in me that needs to change. And then i got to go back and get that authority and be like, God, you got to move me and change me and help me and give me wisdom and grace. And I fast and I pray until it finally comes back around again and then it moves. There's going to be something in your way at some point that's going to cause you to have to deal with who you are. Why? Because if God can do that to you now, when it comes time for you to get to the place where you're going to fight something bigger than yourself for someone else, you can move somebody else's mountain out of the way. 
This is spiritual warfare. To undergo certain things in your life to such a deep degree, you're winning these battles personally so powerfully that when you finally encounter somebody else, you can help them move that and bear their burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Spiritual warfare has a lot to do with restoration of people than it does shouting and binding and and rebuking. I, 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 I'm convinced that it's comic hour in hell whenever he's, they see people jumping around shouting at the devil. I think they just sit back and chuckle. I really do. <laughs> the only time Jesus rebuked the, the devil was whenever it got into his business. To stop his goal. Every other time, there was lots of devils around him all the time, wasn't there? I mean, think about it. He's with the Pharisees all the time. He didn't sit there and rebuke that religious spirit. I rebuke that religious spirit in Jesus' name. That's not what he said. Why? It's simple. You never will have power over somebody else's will. And if they align themselves with a spiritual reality like religion, Guess what? The only way you're going to free them from it is not through the deliverance. It's through relationship. Spiritual warfare has a lot to do with mercy and grace and love and joy and peace and kindness and love to a point where you separate the person from the demon in their mind and then they're more open to what you have to say. And then when they fall out of agreement with what's in their head, they come into agreement with what's coming out of your mouth, then all of a sudden that power has no authority over them anymore. And it lifts off of them and they're like, wow, I feel so much better. That's why Jesus established relationship with his people. I heard one guy say, well, if if you're not casting demons out of the people in your church, then then you're not a true church. I'm like, well, I don't see where Jesus ever cast demons out of his disciples. I think people who are possessed by demons aren't saved. Because when God builds his house, I don't think I would let my enemy live there. <laughs> now, they may be oppressed, but that's, that's a totally different issue. Possession is demonic. And God doesn't live in a house that's possessed by the devil. Does that make sense? So let's, again, this is, again, this is, this is Paul telling us, let, let's focus on 1 through 5 and not focus so much on chapter 6. Why? Because when we get 1 through 5, chapter 6 will just naturally occur. And this is why he says, stand, 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 stand. Why? Because when you stand, you're standing on everything that came before that, which causes the powers and principalities to have no power. When you live in such a way, you command obedience from powers that are prone to rebel. You want to you wanna make princes bow to you? Love your wife. Love your brothers and sisters. Resist the temptation to dominate and usurp yourself in a situation. Because princes use arrogance and pride and narcissism and power and prestige and popularity 
to govern cities and churches through influence and fear and exposure. And, and when you defy all of that and serve, you're undermining that power, taking away his glory, and then all of a sudden you gain the heart of the person. And that's how you win. Does this make sense? Live worthy of the calling which you were called. The practical life of a son of God, the house that we bear, mirrors the father who lives there. I want you to understand that Jesus said this in John 17. He said, for their sake, let me read it to you, I sanctify myself so that they also might be sanctified to the truth. When you live a life of sanctification before God, the only recourse, the only outcome of that life lived in sanctification is that those around you begin to be sanctified by the truth that you're releasing. You begin to live in such a way that people begin to be set apart by God. But guess what? When you start to live this way, do you think the enemy is just going to just ignore you? <laughs> you're actually making a threat against him now, whereas before when you were just shaking your fist and rebuking things, he was going to let you do that all day long. But when you actually start loving and living with people to such a degree as what I'm talking about, guess what? He is going to excite your circumstances so much so that he tries to get your entire focus on the attack that's happening in your life to get you to stop doing what you're doing because you're having impact in his kingdom. Your boss is going to be edgy. Your, your wife's going to be edgy. There's going to be bills that don't get paid, certain things that the devil can physically manipulate in your life, all to pull your attention away from having a mindset of service and love and faith and hope for people other than yourself. And you have to begin to condition your mind, which is why we went through the mind renewal series when this happens. Why? Because when this happens, you need to start going, hey, this means what I'm doing is working. So I'll keep doing it. If I'm pissing hell off, excuse me, then I'll keep doing so. If it's working, then I'll keep doing it. All right. Hell fears a practical Christianity. This is why we have so much sloppy, agape, ooey-gooey, woo stuff. Yeah, people out there like, well, I just do. I just only do what I hear the Lord say to do, brother. Okay, can we test that and let me slap you in the face? See how you'll respond. See, that stuff doesn't usually work when it comes down to practical nuts and bolts of when you're not getting your way. You can be all spiritual and say you only wear the color T-shirt that the Holy Spirit tells you to put on in the morning, but if you don't respond to your waitress right and tip her well even when she does a bad job, you're not operating in the gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, you need to tip people who do bad jobs. Why? They did a bad, because it's not based upon works. Your salvation wasn't based upon works, and if it was, Jesus would have never tipped you his cross. You bless people because you are a blessing, period. It's not conditional upon their, what they do. And if it is, you're looking at life the wrong way. You're looking at how it affects you instead of how you affect them. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> we all, well... <laughs> It's potluck today, so you can't go out and tip everybody. So you say everybody's gonna get some good tips this afternoon, but that's not all right. So I'm gonna jump down. We're not gonna get there, but but I'm gonna verse 17. If you can look at verse 17, we're gonna come back to verse one. But verse 17, we're jumping ahead because it 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 speaks of verse one. It says, "I'm telling you 
uh, therefore testified to the Lord that you should no longer what? Yeah, or what? As the rest of the Gentiles live in the futility of their mind. Okay? That word futility uh, literally means basically to live void of purpose. In other words, to live in such a way that there is no eternity. Now, I know we believe in eternity, but we don't live as if there is one many times. Because if we did live as if there was one, we, our decisions would be way different than they are. Because if we, we practically faced down an eternity in every situation of our life, we would live in a, in a way in our mind that is not futile. All of our decisions would be based upon an eternal reality, not a temporal reality. So what Paul's doing in verse 17 is he's trying to get people to condition themselves to understand that there's a spiritual reality. And you need to live there. Because if you don't live there, when you start trying to govern principalities, you're going to already have trained yourself to live in an environment that they aren't in. It's just they're manipulating it. So you need to live in the same environment you're warring in. Does that make sense? Everybody say this with me. I am not a body. I'm a spirit. Isn't that true? Why do you live as a body? See, your spirit is only affected by the emotions of your body if you allow your body to be affected by those emotions. So, you know, whenever somebody makes you mad, you have a, you have a choice to use something from the Holy Spirit called self-control. <laughs> And guess what? If you use that power, all of a sudden you respond differently. Any use of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is an act of war upon health. And the devil just tries to get you to not value the little things you've done. Every time you serve somebody, you're undermining darkness. God says, don't, 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 you need to realize I'm not going to forget anything you've done. So I want you to turn to, well, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want, Genesis 5.24. I want you to hone in on this word walk because it's going to set the rest of the, the, of the chapter for us as we get to it next week and the week after. Genesis 5.24, it says, Enoch walked with God. And he never died because God took him. Enoch, what with God? Or lived with God? You with me? It's impossible to live life and not walk with a spiritual power at some point in your life. Some of you walk with depression every day. That's not Jesus. Fear. If you're walking with fear, if you're living with fear, it's because you're choosing it. Now, you can tell me the greatness of your circumstances and all the things that are going wrong in your life, but you're, what you're asking me to, to admit to is that your situation, your particular situation, is bigger than God. And I can't go there with you with that. Does that make sense? Genesis 17, I want you to look at this. 
Abraham was 90 years old, verse 1, 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I'm the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. That word walk is added to by the word before. Do you know what that word means? Many, many times it's translated as, it's panim, it means to, to, it means to face, to turn. It's the part of the head that turns. He says, you live facing me. Not facing your problems, not facing your warfare, not facing your trials. You live facing me. The same way Adam was born was the same way he was to live. The same way Christians are born is the same way they're to live. When Adam was born, the first face he saw was God's. His eyes opened. He saw God pulling away from his face, from breathing that breath of life in front of him. And he's the first face he saw. And he says, I want you to live facing me. So he revives this in Abraham. The same thing with us. The Holy Spirit came into us at salvation. The breath of God facing the Lord. He says, I want you to live facing me. This is why Paul's talking in verse 1 of chapter 4. Walk, live, worthy of the calling. That word calling in the Greek means an invitation from God. Live, taking and upholding in, receiving the invitation of God to you to face him. Not to face your sin, not to face your trials. Do you have to bring that stuff? Absolutely. But guess what? When you lay it on his altar, it all burns away. And the only thing that's left is you and him again. That's why he calls you to face him. Because when you face him, everything else in between you and him burns. But if sin can get you into shame and keep you from facing God and running from him and staying away from his people, guess what? Then you're not able to live in the way that God is commanding you to walk before him, to walk upon him, to turn your head and face him again. Because when we face God, we don't see the big, the big battle in front of us. To live facing God the days of our life. That word panim is also used in, in Leviticus 9.24. It says, there came a fire from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. And when all the people saw the fire, they shouted, fell on their faces. They fell on their panim before God. See, it's translated as the word before, but it, here it's translated as the word to be on your face. Does it make sense to you? And Paul's using this understanding, especially from a Hebrew, knowing how to walk with God. The word know there that Paul is very familiar with. When the, in the Old Testament when it says that, that we should know God and, and knowing him and the first time that word's used in the Bible is when Adam knew his wife Eve and bore a son. That word know is an intimate form of, of intimacy. Face-to-face encounter. 
Paul's talking to these Ephesians and saying, you need to walk before God on your face, facing him. Live this way. In Psalms 24, 6, it says, this generation, this is the generation of them that seek him and that seek thy face or thy panim. To seek the face of God and to have our face turned to him. You know how hard it is to seek the face of God whenever you're staring at the face of a principality? See, you know, you know which one's bigger? It's whichever one's closest to you. I want, you, I want everybody just to turn their hand sideways just like this for a second. I want you to look at the width of your hand. How wide is that? Not very wide, is it? But I want you to put it right in front of your eyes. And you tell me what you see the, the most of. Something so small becomes something so great when it's close to your face. What, whichever is bigger is not your theological answer. Well, God's bigger. Well, then why don't you submit to him? Why are we having a problem? No, whichever one's bigger is not your theological discourse of, of, your, of your response. Whichever one's bigger is the ones that are closest to your face. Walk, live, worthy of the calling, the invitation that God has given you to face him. Does this make sense? To face God by the way we live is to walk worthy. Every day of our life. That vocation means the divine invitation of a calling. It reminds me of a story that Jesus says he sent out letters to everybody to come join his wedding feast. And everybody made excuses. Everybody got the invitation. You can sit there in church and wave your invitation and go, I've been to church. I've had an experience of salvation 10 years ago. I've got an invitation from God. But do you realize that salvation is just an invitation to something deeper? It's not something you wave in your Christian little presence and ward off the spirit of conviction from some pastor by saying you've had an encounter with God. No, the encounter is the beginning of a relationship. And if the encounter hasn't birthed relationship, it was just nothing more than God dating you, trying to get you to say yes to the marriage he's offering you. See, you might, you might have a kiss from the Holy Spirit in your life somewhere, but that doesn't mean you've said your vows to him at the altar. See, most people think they're saved because they've felt God's presence at one point in their life and they prayed a prayer. No, salvation is a complete adherence to a relationship. It's an allegiance. It shows forth its life by sacrifice and denial and love. And the amount of selfish Christians I see in America, I think a lot of them need to get born again. That's just my opinion. Because the presence of God is very deceiving. The Bible says the presence of God falls on the just and the unjust alike. And just because presence has fallen on you doesn't mean you've said yes to the Holy Spirit to such a degree that he owns the hard places in your life. 
See, because if you have to be propped up by somebody else every time something hard comes, I wonder where your ability to stand really is. Because when you get to Ephesians 6, he says stand like six times in the middle of that verse. Stand, 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 stand. And if you can't stand, then there's a problem. Does this make sense to you? And even in standing, we have a wrong idea of it. Most people, when they think of that stand idea, they're thinking about standing and enduring all the hardships of hell. No, it's like... You're standing on something that's already been defeated. You're holding forth victory. You're not, you're not holding up under an onslaught. Again, because if your eyes are on the principality and the warfare, you're not living in a way where you're facing God. With me? Jesus never taught how to cast out demons. He just said, go do it. And there's a reason for that. Because you don't need teaching. You just, you go do it. Why? Because he didn't want his entire gospel being about the power of the devil. That's why he didn't give a discourse on how to cast out demons. But we have seminars and conferences built on it. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You just live like Jesus and the demons will run when you show up. They'll come and bow to your feet. They will. And if they don't want to be cast out, the person, they'll run away from you. And you honor that. I've had it happen. People run from me that were demon-possessed. See ya. Enjoy it, because I want nothing to do with it. Let's live. Let's walk. Let's, uh, let's face God. Let's, let's turn the part of our lives towards him and live in such a way so that when we get to this point in our life when the war begins to happen, we were already standing on victory before we ever got there. Amen? I'm sorry, but uh, it's after 12, so you can stand. <clears throat> See, I told you we weren't going to get past verse 1. I want you to understand this because it's very important. And I'll harp on it and I'll hammer on it and I'll hammer on it and I'll hammer on it. Ask the Lord in your life to help you live in such a way that would honor his presence in every day of your life. When you find those places where you can't or you were unable, that is the voice of the Lord to your life on where you need to grow. That's not the moment you need to get caught in shame. That's the moment where you need to honestly face yourself and say, something in me has to die so something in him can be transfigured into my nature. This is why relationships are needed. You need somebody to disagree with you, to rub you wrong, to offend you. Because if, it actually, if you were actually as spiritual as you thought you were, you would have never gotten offended in the first place. Seriously. If you were as spiritual as you, it would have never even moved you. Because you love them so much, you would never see the offense. You'd see the pearl. Pay attention to what moves you, because if it's not the Holy Spirit, that's the voice of God pushing on your life, saying, this is where I want to be formed in you. And if you do that, there's a purpose to it. And the purpose is that when you finally meet the principality, he sees so much victory and authority in your life, he's afraid to even touch you. And at some point, you become so valuable that the only thing the devil can do is, either, is just try to kill you, because he can't move you. And if he happens to succeed in that, that's the Father's will too. And guess what? All he did was set you free. So you can't lose when you're living and thinking this way. 
It is impossible to lose unless you quit. And I've seen a lot of people do that. And the worst type of quitting is to stay, ge- stay geographically present but yet give up. To stay coming to church but quit. Quit facing God. Quit facing the people who love you. Quit facing yourself and start hiding in the middle of a crowd. So let's not do that. Let's fulfill Paul's anguish and let's live worthy of the calling, the divine invitation, the vocation that God has given us to be like him, to express his nature by letting him build this house in such a way that he is seen and his personality is seen by those who encounter us. Amen? If this is you, just agree with your heart. Father, we need you. Like Paul prayed, who is sufficient for these things? You are. And so we lean upon you, and I pray for grace over every person's life who will walk into this, because I know how this works, that the hunger that you stimulate in them will only be met by an an attack of, of chaos to test their resolve. I pray they press through. I pray for them right now. I pray for them in their future, that when that moment comes, this week, this month, this year, whatever it looks like, Right there, before they've even got there, Lord, because prayer is eternal and it steps outside of time. I pray for them in that moment right now. Hold them up. Stiffen their mind. Cause them to hang on to the promises of God and not let them go. And let them understand the weight and and the value and the glory of the invitation that you've given them to be like your son. May we face you. And whatever is not like you, as we face you, then it die. Your word says that I will be like you when I behold your face in righteousness. So let it be, God, for this church, for this community. Bless our fellowship. Bless our time. Bless this meal. We ask for the continuation of your spirit to move in this house and that whatever comes against your people will be put down and put down low. We would trample on serpents and scorpions. We ask these things in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. If you can stay with us, we invite you to eat with us and fellowship and get to know us. If you can't, we bless you and and we're glad you were here.